Welcome to the Kanoi Church Podcast. We're glad that you're interested in connecting through this teaching time. If you'd like to connect further, feel free to reach out to us through our website, kanoichurch.org. For now, enjoy this teaching from Kanoi Church, where our mission is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Good morning. We are still talking about the season of Advent. And before I start the sermon today, I want to say Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. This is the last Sunday before Christmas. Christmas is this week. And I want to tell you Merry Christmas. You know, the word Merry actually fits really well in our conversation about joy today. Because Merry means an occasion characterized by rejoicing. Rejoicing. Merry Christmas. The Apostle Paul, from a prison cell, writes a letter to the church in Philippi. And one of the things that excite me is that the next series that we do in the new year is going to be a study of the book of Philippians, and it's going to be about Paul finding joy in the hardest of circumstances, which seems like a reasonable thing for us to talk about as we come out of 2020, honestly. But he writes in this letter to the church in Philippi, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Now, that final word where he says rejoice, it has an exclamation point after it. So it's rejoice. It's not just a eh, rejoice. Eh, rejoice. Rejoice. It's a declaration reminding us of joy in the hardest of circumstances. Paul is in prison. He's in a Roman prison. And we don't exactly know which prison he is in and in which time he's in, but suffice it to say, Paul was killed after a stay in prison. He was beheaded. It could very well be that this is the last time he's in prison before he is martyred for the cause. And yet still in that circumstance, he is telling the people, rejoice in the Lord Always. Again, I'll say it. Rejoice. Sometimes we need, we need to make a declaration to the Lord even when we don't feel like it. Sometimes that's the thing that gets us out of our funk. Even when we don't feel like making a declaration, man, we gotta just call it out and make the declaration. God, you are still good. It doesn't feel like it right now, but God, you are good. And so Paul, this is a, it's a good reminder for us to listen to the words of Paul, to recognize that he's writing these things in the midst of a really troubling situation. Because so many of you have been in a very troubling situation through this year and through this season. I recognize that. I've tried to make a list here of all of the folks that I think have had it kind of rough, and I probably miss people, but maybe you're a student who misses your friends because school has been virtual. I know that doesn't seem like a big sacrifice if you're an adult, but for kids, that seems like a pretty big deal. Maybe you're a business owner trying to figure out how to make ends meet when the money's not coming in anymore. You're trying to determine how best to take care of your employees whom you love and care for, and you're stuck making a decision, do I take care of them now, or is there a business to come back to after I lay them off? What a terrible decision to have to make. Perhaps... You have health conditions that make you worried about everything that's going on, or perhaps you have family who have health conditions that make you worried. I know this is a, a true one. You've heard doctors tell you, stay inside as much as possible. 
Don't be around other people as much as possible. Oh, what a blow that is. Our social development is still very important, even as adults. Maybe you've lost family members during this season. Perhaps because of COVID and perhaps for other reasons. Maybe you're sick or you've been sick. Maybe you're frustrated because you think that this whole thing isn't as big a deal as it's made out to be. Maybe you're angry because you feel like your rights have been trampled on. Maybe it's as simple as you miss hugging your church family. You miss sitting in Sunday school or visiting in the lobby over a cup of coffee. You just miss what it used to feel like when things felt normal. The season has been hard. Advent itself has been hard. And yet, Paul sits in prison, reminding his congregation to rejoice in the Lord always. And that can leave a bitter taste on our tongue if we let it. And I want to encourage you that as we continue to explore the Advent themes, like joy, you don't let joy harden your heart. That might sound weird. How can joy harden my heart? Well, I can harden my heart against joy. I can read something that says, rejoice in the Lord always, and feel like, well, no one understands what I'm going through. God doesn't understand what I'm going through. And so I harden my heart against it. And I want to encourage you, don't do that. Don't harden your heart against the joy. Instead, let the words of Paul, the encouragement of Paul, wash over your heart today. Rejoice in the Lord always. You know, Paul authors the letter of Philippians with Timothy. Timothy is a young pastor, someone who is much younger than Paul. Timothy is somebody that looks up to Paul, who's learning from Paul. So as Paul sits in prison writing this letter with Timothy, don't you think that Timothy is probably looking to Paul to see how's he gonna act? How's he gonna react? Knowing that the worst thing could happen, knowing that Paul might be going to his death after being in prison? How will he react? How will he react? Timothy is always watching, always listening, and Timothy will carry this letter. He'll carry the message of the gospel back to his congregation after he leaves Paul. So Timothy watches. Paul is writing. And Paul's words are a reminder to Timothy. They're a reminder to all of us. And they're probably a reminder to himself. I think Paul didn't have frustrations, didn't have questions, didn't go, God, why am I in prison? Can I be doing so much better outside of prison for you? It's a reminder to himself too. And Paul makes this important declaration, rejoice with an exclamation point after it. Rejoice! We've been talking about all of the gifts under the tree this Advent. I don't think there's anything wrong with having a Christmas tree at your house. There's nothing wrong with having gifts under the tree. I think what we need to remember and make sure that we keep at the forefront of our mind is that the greatest gift of Christmas doesn't come under the tree. It's not about those. The greatest gift at Christmas comes from the one above. It's a baby, Jesus Christ. It's greater than we could possibly imagine. And to help us get focused on that good gift, we've been talking about the different gifts under the tree. The gift of waiting. 
how God was going to wait as long as he possibly can before he returns to take his people with him so that more and more people would begin to know his name, would come to worship him, come to follow him, so that he doesn't take just a few with him when he comes back, but he takes a multitude with him when he comes back. What a gift that we have of waiting. Last week we talked about the gift of anticipation and how these, there are these moments where we're standing knee deep in something really hard and we are just falling on the promise of God that God is going to come through in the midst of that knee deep stuff that we're trudging through. And so we have this gift of anticipation. Today, the gift of declaration. What did we say that Mary meant? Merry Christmas. Mary is a, an occasion that is characterized by rejoicing. Christmas, it's literally two words put together, Christ and Mass. It was a celebration, a church celebration, every year, annually, celebrating the coming of Christ. It was a Mass for Christ, Christmas. Mary, Christ, Mass. So when we say Merry Christmas, we say it with great joy, because we remember that Christ is born. So no more grumbling, Merry Christmas. Oh, Merry Christmas. No more half-hearted, ah, Merry Christmas. No more of that. We declare, Merry Christmas. Rejoice, Christ is born. And that is our declaration. And when we say Merry Christmas, that is what we are declaring. In Luke 2, we have one of the first declarations of rejoice, Christ is born. One of the very first Merry Christmases among the shepherds. I'm going to read from Luke chapter 2, verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloth, lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven. And on earth, peace to those whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. The angels declare. The angels make a declaration. Don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy, for today the Messiah has been born. Oh my, God's people have waited so long to hear those words. And that's something that sometimes we can miss in the Christmas story. Sometimes we get so focused in reading Luke chapter 2 that we can miss that God's people have been waiting for 2,000 years for the fulfillment of these prophecies that the Messiah would come. All the way back in Genesis chapter 49, Jacob is blessing his children. He says to Judah, the scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff between his feet until he to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nations shall be his. This is a prediction. It's, a, it's anticipation. It's a declaration. It's a, it's a prophecy about a ruler who will come from Judah's descendants, 
and that the nations would obey this ruler. And from this point on in history, from the time of Jacob to the time of Judah, all the way forward until the moment that Jesus is born, there are more predictions and there are more prophecies about what this Messiah would be like. Hosea prophesies that the Messiah would end up in Egypt. Micah predicts that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. The psalmist prophesies that he would be the perfect sacrifice. Isaiah prophesies that his ministry would begin in Galilee. Isaiah prophesies that the Messiah's parables would fall on deaf ears. And Daniel prophesies that the Messiah would have an everlasting throne. God's people were constantly, throughout history, hearing prophecy after prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. For generation upon generation, father passing to son, mother passing to daughter, prophecy after prophecy, the promise that the Messiah was going to come. They heard this in the best of times, and they heard this in the worst of times. The Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming for 2,000 years. And then we have the fulfillment of these prophecies. That's what we celebrate at Christmas time the fulfillment of all of these prophecies. The shepherds were waiting for this, the Jews were waiting for this moment. Judas the Galilean, I talked about him last year. He was a Jewish man from the same area as Jesus, Galilee. And Judas, around the time that Jesus was born, Judas led a massive revolt against the Romans. Judas was a guy who told his fellow Jews, don't pay the taxes that the Romans are putting upon you. And if you do, I will burn down your house and kill your livestock. Don't pay them. Judas was an extremist. He wasn't like a beloved freedom fighter. He was an extremist. Judas and his followers marched on the capital city in Galilee, occupied by the Romans, and they burnt the city to the ground. All of this happened around the time that Jesus was born. So Jesus was born into a world of chaos, a world of war, a world of violence, amidst all the prophecies that someday the Messiah would come. And don't you think that there were probably some people who heard about Judas and said, well, maybe he's the Messiah. Maybe he's the one who's going to overthrow the Romans. Maybe he's the one who's going to lead us to freedom. But what happens to a small group of extremists when they attack a superpower? Rome was the superpower of the day, make no mistake. The answer hasn't changed in 2,000 years. When a small group of extremists attack a superpower, the superpower crushes them. Jeff did this. That's right on. The superpower brings the full force, the full weight of their military against the rebels. And around the time that Jesus is born, 2,000 Galileans, 2,000 of the men, the brothers in the area in which he's born, 2,000 of his neighbors were executed for their attack on the Romans, 2,000 men. Something that we need to understand that we often will miss as we read the Christmas story is that these prophecies, these declarations are dangerous declarations. For the shepherds to tell a story about angels coming, to tell them that the Messiah is born, that the king of all kings is born, 
Well, that's a dangerous thing to say because Caesar is Lord. Caesar is God. To say that there is another God, a higher God, a king of all kings that is over Caesar, that will end the rule of the Romans, that is a dangerous declaration. For wise men to come to King Herod, to approach, to approach the local Roman authority and say, hey, we heard that the king above all kings has been born. Do you know where he's at? Is a slap in the face, whether they realize it or not. That's why King Herod used all of his power to kill all of the baby boys in the area. That's why Mary and Joseph fled to Egypt. The world that Jesus is born into is an awful place. 2,000 men just killed for a revolt. Baby boys being murdered because they might be the fulfillment of a prophecy. The world is broken and it is violent and it is messy. And this is the world into which the Savior is born. Listen to Isaiah 61. This is a prophecy by the prophet Isaiah about the Messiah. It says, The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I wonder if that sounds familiar to you. Now put your, yourself in the shoes of Caesar or King Herod or any other Roman authority, the Jews, the people that you have crushed, persecuted, You've taxed relentlessly. You've subdued them. You've imprisoned them. You've made them your slaves. You kick them. You beat them. You kill them. You make them carry your bags. They have been predicting as a people for 2,000 years that someone's going to come and end the injustice. Someone's going to come and take all the wrong and make it right. They've been predicting it. They've been preaching it in their synagogues. Put yourself in the shoe of Caesar. When Jesus grows up to become a man, he goes to the synagogue in his hometown in Galilee. In Luke chapter 4, he's handed the scroll of Isaiah. Jesus opens the scroll of Isaiah, and he could have read from anywhere, mind you. But he chooses the words that I just read. He chooses what we know as Isaiah 61. And in Luke chapter 4, he reads, The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that could just be a normal, regular reading in the synagogue that week. But it doesn't end there. Luke chapter 4, verse 20 says, Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. 
How dangerous is it to speak the prophecies about one who will come to end oppression and bring justice for all? How much more dangerous must it be to claim that it has been fulfilled? It's dangerous. Declarations are dangerous. We're all declaring things with our lives. Every single one of us are. Make no mistake, there are Timothys watching and looking up to us, each and every one. When you pray at a meal, at a restaurant, you're making a declaration. Maybe you don't feel like it. Maybe it's something you were raised with. It's something you've gotten accustomed to do. But when you make a declaration, like praying at a meal, you're declaring that you follow Jesus. You're declaring that there is something bigger and greater than you. You're declaring that there is something that you're giving thanks to before you eat this meal that has been presented to you. And make no mistake, people around you see it. Watch it. They're looking. I talked to somebody this week from our congregation who told me a story of when they were out on a walk with their friend and they were staring up at the sky, the beautiful sky. They couldn't believe how gorgeous it was. Some of the stars were coming out before all the clouds and the sun was gone. It was this perfect moment that they were just in awe of the sky. And they were talking about how God made the sky. And one of their neighbors was walking towards them and said, what are you doing? What are you looking at? They said, we're looking at the sky. God made that. It's so good. It's so amazing. Haven't you ever wondered who made what you see? And the person looked up and said, no, I I guess not. That's a declaration. I declare that God is good, that God made the heavens and the earth. I declare that he holds the, the stars in his hands. I declare it beautiful. That is a declaration that has been declared in that group of three. When I was in high school, there was a, a mass shooting um, at a place called Columbine. Probably remember that. And there was several people killed in that mass shooting. But a couple of the people that were killed were approached by the shooters and asked, do you believe in God? With a gun to their head. The story goes for one of them was already shot, laying on the ground, saying, God, don't let me die. God, don't let me die. And the shooters towered over her and said, why do you even believe in God? The story goes for another, the gun pointed at her head. Do you believe in God? Yes, I do. And the trigger was pulled. Make no mistake, that is a declaration. One that is talked about still today, years, decades after that shooting. That is a declaration that has an impact on the people who are also in the room, who would also be survivors, people who would talk about those moments, people who would write books about those moments, people who would share that story with the rest of the country so that those of us would hear those things on the radio or at concerts or at speaking events. We would hear the story of the brave teenagers, teenagers who with a gun pointed at their head said, yes, I do believe, and they paid a price for it. Those are declarations that ring throughout the world. In 19... 
56, there were five missionaries, one whose name was Nate Saint. They went to Ecuador and they made contact with a tribe called the Huerani. And the Huerani were almost, almost completely secluded. They didn't like any outside contact. And every time they've had outside contact, they would, it would be met with violence. Well, these five missionaries, Nate Saint among them, decided that they felt like God was calling them to this tribe. And so they got on a plane, which Nate was the pilot of, and they flew into the, <clears throat> they flew into the, uh, the rainforest in Ecuador and they landed the plane and they made first contact. And then it went kind of well. It was a man and two women from the tribe. It was a little tense, but it seemed to go okay. A little while later, Warriors from the tribe came back to where they were at. And you know, when I think about what they were trying to do, what these missionaries were doing, what all of our missionaries are doing, is they're making a declaration of who God is to people who may not know. We've watched videos about folks in Africa, folks in Spain, folks in, that at the Navajo Mission who are making declarations that who God is, who Jesus is, that God is good, that there is joy to be found in the Lord. As, as uh, Trinity said, that there's a greater joy in, in the Lord than there is in getting high or getting drunk. They're making declarations. These five men were flying into the jungle to make a declaration about who God is. It's probably fair for us to say that you and I are called to make the declaration and we leave the rest in God's hands. We make the declaration and we wait to see if God will fulfill it. Those warriors returned and they would use spears to kill all five of these missionaries, including Nate Saint. They would take the spears and they would destroy the plane as well. In the years after his death, Nate's sister, Rachel, would make further contact with the tribe, peaceful contact with the tribe. In the summers, after that peaceful contact was made, Nate's son, Steve, would actually spend summers with the tribe, living with Aunt Rachel, learning from the tribe, building relationships. The tribe ended up caring a great deal for Rachel, and she spent 36 years there. She helped to minister to and even baptize two of the warriors who killed the five men. After she passed away while attending her funeral in Ecuador, her nephew, Steve, the son of Nate Saint, who's now an adult with a degree in economics, a successful businessman in the U.S., he was asked by the tribe to live with them, to teach them, to help them set up a system of economics, an economy for their tribe. And Steve would grow close to one particular of the men, probably the age of his father, a man named Minkaye. Minkaye was the warrior that speared Steve's father to death, was the man who killed his father. Steve and Minkaye would travel the world together. They would speak at concerts, they would speak at all sorts of places sharing the story of their relationship, sharing the story of Minkaye and his father, Nate. Because Minkaye became a Christian. He became a follower of Jesus. He was baptized. He was saved. He turned his life over to Jesus. Minkaye would share at some of these places that 
Back in the day when the warriors would go to war with each other, the warriors would be separated from their children. And so the warriors, the fathers, would make markings, particular to them on the trees, that their children would then follow to find their warrior fathers, to be reunited with them. Minkaye shares that the Bible are the marks on the trees left by God. And we follow those marks to find him. Minkaye talked about following his own trail when he killed Nate Saint. But now he doesn't want to follow any trail but God's. He sees the trail so clearly, so well. And because he sees the trail so well, he is responsible to teach others how to follow the marks. Over the many years they spent together, Steve and Minkaye's relationship deepened. In fact, Minkaye would become known as Grandfather Minkaye. He wasn't just a grandfather in the tribe. And mind you, after the missionaries did finally break into the tribe and did build relationships with them, they realized that the tribe had no grandparents because they were all killed in all of the battles that they would have. There were no old men. Old men didn't make it. There were only young men. No one lived that long. Minkaye was one of the first to become a grandfather and live to see his own grandchildren. He was grandfather Minkaye, but Steve said he wasn't just a grandfather to his children, he was a grandfather to Steve's children as well. Minkaye took the place of the father that he had killed. Minkaye died in 2020, this year. He now is reunited with Nate, hopefully developing a friendship with Nate in the way that he did with Steve. But I want you to think about the story. Go back to the beginning with Nate. Go back to him landing a plane with those five men being confronted by those warriors. Nate never had the chance to give the most well-spoken or most well-developed or theologically astute sermon. His sermon was his life. His declaration was the way that he risked everything to go to a tribe that had been previously very violent. His direct declaration was in the way that he lived and in the way that he died. Minkaye often asked the questions, why didn't they shoot us? They charged them with spears. Why didn't they shoot us? His declaration was not just in the way that he lived, but in the way that he died. And that declaration spoke to his son. It spoke to his sister, Rachel. And it spoke to his killer. His killer who is now declaring Jesus Christ to all who would listen. You see, we make the declaration... Jesus fulfills it. Just like every declaration in the Old Testament, every declaration that talked about the coming of the Christ, waited for Jesus to fulfill it. The Apostle Paul sits in a jail cell. Timothy is watching. Timothy is listening. He's learning. And Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. And that declaration is just words if Paul's not joyful, right? If he says, rejoice in the Lord always, I say it again, rejoice, but I'm a big old grumpus, that doesn't mean anything to Timothy. Rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say, rejoice. Paul's declaration means something because in the hardest of circumstances, he actually rejoiced. We make the declaration and Jesus helps us fulfill it. You think Paul could do that by himself? No. That was God helping him, the Spirit helping him. This past week, we got a really nice snowstorm. 
First good one of the winter, it dumped about a foot of snow and the storm was cold and windy if you were out in it. It sleeted, it rained, it snowed and you may have heard that there was a young boy missing in our town just as the storm started. And he was wearing nothing more than sneakers and jeans and a sweatshirt. Rescuers were out all night for the duration of the storm looking in yards and looking in abandoned buildings and fields and forests, searching people's backyards and their playhouses, anywhere that he might have found some shelter. They were hoping beyond hope that they would find him. It didn't look good. And I found that rescuers have a really difficult balance of hope and reality. Reality was that a child was lost in the worst conditions and he wasn't dressed well. Didn't stand much of a chance. And more than once I heard people say, it's gonna be a miracle if he survives. It's gonna take a miracle. It's gonna take a miracle. During the search process, one person looked at me and said, shouldn't you be talking to your boss about this? You know, my boss, God. You see, you and I are no different than Paul, Timothy, Steve, Nate, Rachel, Minkaye. There are people watching when they know that we follow God, when we, they know that we love Jesus, our lives are declaring something. They're watching to see what will happen. What do you say to that? Shouldn't you be talking to your boss? Yeah, I've been talking to him. I'll keep talking to him. It's in his hands. Some of you probably saw too that I went to Facebook and I asked for all of you to pray. For anybody who was still up at a crazy hour and I was surprised to find that many of you don't sleep and you were up and you took to it. I gave you an anonymous prayer request. Please pray if you see this. And the amount of people that responded to pray blew my mind. You declared something with me that night. You put your faith in God, not knowing what the outcome would be, not even knowing what the request was, because at that point, I'm not gonna give out information. So many people from our community, from our church, from our town, even folks that I know across the country in California took to praying when they read that. And together, God's people declared something. We declared that God was bigger than whatever need was there. Not knowing what the need was, but just guessing. We declare God is bigger than whatever the need is. We declare that God is bigger than our fear. We declare that he's more powerful than our worry. We declare that he is the great miracle maker and whatever the situation is, it was in his hands. We make the declaration, Jesus fulfills it. After the storm passed, after almost 14 hours of being missing, the young boy was found, and a miracle was done. All those people who said it would take a miracle, all those people who trudged through the snow all night, who drank cup of coffee after cup of coffee just to stay awake, who said, boy, I hope, but I probably dare not. It would take a miracle were witness to the boy being found. We make the declaration. Jesus fulfills it. So what's your life declaring? This Advent season and all that you've been through and what 2020 has looked like for you, what is your life declaring to the men and women, the sons and daughters, the husbands and wives that are in your bubble, in your sphere of influence, 
the husbands and wives and the sons and daughters and the friends and family who, who hear you proclaim Christ and also watch the life that you live, who hear your proclamation of the birth of Christ and also see the writing that you do about people who disagree with your opinions. What, what are you saying when you talk about Jesus as my Savior but you make disparaging remarks to the people around you. What are you declaring? Your life is a megaphone. If you open your Bible to the Christmas story in Luke chapter two, which many of us spend a lot of time in this season of the year, you see the Messiah is born and everything before that is the story of Jesus's ancestors. It's the story of his family. It's the story of God interacting with his people and in particular a family line within those people that culminates in the birth of Jesus from the line of Judah and the line of King David. Everything that comes after the birth of Jesus is the story of God and his followers. So you have followers and you have family. And this whole thing together, this story, this thing we call scripture, this thing we call the Bible, this thing that is the collection of God's people meeting together that we call the church, this is the story of how followers become family, how we have been invited into the family of God, how we have been grafted into it. We declare ourselves sons and daughters of God. We declare it and God fulfills it. So when you say Merry Christmas this week, don't grumble. When you say it, don't do it with a hard heart. Don't do it through gritted teeth or with half the meaning. When you say Merry Christmas this week, I want you to think about the declaration that you're making. You're not saying nice tree when you say Merry Christmas. You're not saying, boy, I hope your tree is filled with all the gifts. You're not saying, I hope you get the gift you want. You're not saying, gorge yourself on cookies. When you say Merry Christmas, you're declaring, rejoice. Christ is here. Make no mistake, Christ is here. That is what you are declaring this season of the year. Christ is here. You declare it, God fulfills it. I want to close with a reading from Isaiah 52 this morning. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, you watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. What are you declaring? Merry Christmas. 
Hi, this is Pastor Nick. Thanks for listening. I hope something that you heard today was very helpful. If you want to connect with us further, feel free to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or our website, kanoichurch.org. Sure, I'm glad we're in this together. Thank you.